Hello and welcome to another instalment of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. This is another bonus episode made possible by my kind patrons over at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Thanks to them, we do a bonus episode each and every month, and in addition, I've been recently producing a new podcast, Popular Antiquarian, in which I look at media produced before the year 2000, because old stuff is the best. There's a new episode gone up this week focusing on a near-forgotten writer of weird tales, so check that out if old horror stories are your thing. I have the very pleasant duty to thank a new patron as well. Homer's Ghost, thanks so much for your support. All patrons receive a parcel of gaming material, including three complete game books and three complete role-playing games, so there's more on offer than the warm glow of keeping a steady stream of nonsense coming out of your computer. Now, this episode, I'm delighted to be covering another game book written by one of my listeners, Rulers of the Now by Stuart Lloyd. Aside from writing game books, Stuart runs the excellent Lloyd of Game Books blog, which you should definitely check out if you have any interest in creating interactive fiction. He's incredibly knowledgeable, and the blog is a treasure trove of useful information for fans of game books. Rulers of the Now is a bit different from most of the game books we have covered. Instead of being a fantasy warrior or a space assassin, you are a humble bureaucrat in a not-too-distant future trying to get by in a world that's sold as a paradise but seems remarkably cruel and indifferent to human suffering. Let's take a look at the rules. Your character in Rulers of the Now is defined by a number of stats. The first is Resolve, which reflects your self-belief and assertiveness. It starts out at 3 and can change over time, going either up or down. If your Resolve drops to 0, it's probably game over. You also get three traits, which function a bit like skills. Two are automatic. You start with bureaucracy and sense mood. Bureaucracy reflecting your familiarity with the systems of control that surround you at all times, while sense mood uh, acts to give you some insight into the reality behind all those carefully constructed masks which are everywhere. You also get to choose one trait from the following list, Deceit, Cowardice and Wrecker. Deceit does what it says on the tin, providing a talent for lying and subterfuge. Cowardice is slightly paradoxical since it reflects your physical strength and fighting ability. In this topsy-turvy world, all dissent is rebranded as a form of cowardice. Wrecker reflects your technical skill, your ability with machines and computers and so forth. For this adventure, I have chosen Deceit when I play in tabletop role-playing games. I often like to play characters like bards and rogues, and so this trait seemed like a good fit with that. There's space on your character sheet for equipment and code words you can collect over the course of the story, and there's also a box for tracking time units which have elapsed. All that remains is for me to give my character a name, and I've decided to call them palsy whippersnapper since I think that sounds appropriately downtrodden. So lovely, simple, clean character creation rules. Uh, No dice rolling whatsoever but you get to make one choice which will govern the kind of character you play. I very much like that. Now let's dive into Rulers of the Now.
background or the birth of the now. The early 21st century was a time when humanity almost brought about its own extinction. Despite the efforts from the old productive elites to steer governments into the correct way of thinking, most people were greedy, lazy and unconcerned with the damage they were causing. Societies were becoming fractured and fighting each other instead of buying goods. Irreversible catastrophic climate change was imminent, reducing the stock value of many agribusinesses. The internet was being flooded by useless data that couldn't help any company out. Despite the efforts of the producers, the occupants of planet Earth seemed determined to cause their own destruction. However, humanity was not destroyed, thanks to the efforts of the only people who had the will and the means to save it. The rich. The companies owned by the 13 richest families pooled all of their resources to prevent the spread of disease, stop illegal immigration and reduce corporate tax. And they charitably did it at no cost for the first five years. When the governments of the world were not able to pay back the rich for their efforts, the rich decided that they had had enough. They sponsored their own representatives to stand for election and guide the masses to be more productive and lead humanity into an era of endless economic growth. The Illuminated, as the group called themselves, ejected all of the corrupt government officials from positions of power, uncovered a secret cabal within the government which wanted to use their power for their own unsavoury ends, and kept the general populace in line so that it wouldn't consume itself with violence. In order to do all of these things effectively, the Illuminated needed to seize control of most of the gold and the valuable resources of the world. In the last two decades, the Illuminated have created a new golden era. They oversaw construction of the first space station fit for permanent human habitation. The station, called the Horus Sanctuary, lit up the sky as a shining example of what humanity could do when it knew its place and let the rich take charge. Now everyone could be happy knowing that their betters could have a place to retire to, a place they deserved. After the success of the Horus Sanctuary, the Illuminated funded colonies on the Moon and on Mars. Once those colonies had been established, the ruling class named the organisation that oversaw the governance of Earth, the Moon and Mars the New Order of Worlds, or NOW. They told everyone that they belonged to the NOW, so that they shouldn't waste any of their time. They should be putting it all into being productive in order to pay off the massive debt they had accrued for needing to be saved in the 2020s. The Illuminated put huge amounts of effort into making the population follow their example. They prized competition to inspire the masses, praising people's efforts to get ahead. If people failed, they just weren't putting enough effort in. Or maybe they just weren't capable of achieving greatness. Some weren't prepared to achieve success through their actions. One person's success had to be gained at the expense of others' success. It will only be when everyone realises that, that everybody can be successful. Despite constantly taking away the resources and luxuries the general populace no longer deserved, and giving them less to be responsible for, most civilians in the now refused to be productive enough. And because of this, they almost brought about a global climate change disaster. 
Despite being warned, the population of Terra continued to use fossil fuels and waste plastic that was sold to them. Some asked for alternatives, yet continued to pollute the planet as they did so. It was only thanks to the now that environmentally friendly technology became available to the general populace at a reasonable price. However, even now, the poorest civilians refused to make the sacrifice to pay for clean energy, instead using petrol cars or coal-created electricity, despite the massive penalty it has to their social rank value. As the now worked away, its influence is starting to be felt. Some of its civilians act in a more productive way. The environment is beginning to recover, but the civilians still need to change their attitudes to what resources they use and to stop buying fossil fuels. Rogue states are still demanding more power for its lower classes, universal healthcare and even universal basic income. But a combination of peaceful economic sanctions and some unfortunate accidents among high-ranking officials and military personnel in those states is finally starting to convince them otherwise. So that is the scene, and I think it sets the scene very effectively. Uh, I think we can all grasp that we're in uh, satirical territory here, with uh, the now being an analogue, perhaps, of the New World Order, and the corporate oligarchy that is rapidly becoming the default mode of human government. This is the sort of thing that is preaching to the choir with me, but you know what? I like stuff that preaches to the choir. I like seeing a thing and going, oh yes, I agree with that. That is exactly what I think as well. So no complaints from me, whatever. Uh, you can argue maybe that this isn't the subtlest satire in the world, but I would say when you're writing a game book and a science fiction game book in particular, you need to do really broad brush strokes to give people a sense of the world that the adventure is taking place in. You don't have the luxury of people just assuming that any fantasy game is going to take place in a world that is somewhat analogous to Dungeons and Dragons or the works of Tolkien. You also get some background for our character. Your life so far. You have failed. That sums up your whole life. Ever since you were born, you have been little more than a drain on resources and time. And despite being constantly told this as a child, you refuse to be productive for the first 16 years of your life. It's like he's met me. You were never rewarded with your parents' approval. You never did well in school. Your social rank value was always below average for your peer group. Your aptitude tests placed you in the Craven class. Your intelligence and work ethic was reasonable, but you didn't have the discipline to make anything of them. You struggled through school and university until your graduation at 23. You almost didn't get your degree, but you managed to scrape through with a lot of hard work, sleepless nights, and begging. You immediately went somewhere that could make good use of your skills. The Temping Agency. You had nowhere near enough talent to be indispensable enough for a permanent job, so you drifted from data entry to making coffee to filling in forms, to answering the phones in different companies. You are currently working at the Workers' Accident Insurance Institute, the best place for companies to buy insurance in case their workers have had accidents and 
they decide they need some compensation. Your work was rated terrible at first, but with a lot of hard work, sleepless nights and begging, you managed to keep your job and have your work rated acceptable. However, you still miss small details which prevent your work from being given a higher rating, and this has stopped you getting a pay rise since you joined. Your boss, Mr Kilgore, is always pointing out your flaws and mistakes to you, and even when he does it in front of everyone, it still doesn't seem to make you any better. I have to say, this list of terrible jobs being done to a mediocre standard is giving me terrible flashbacks. Life isn't all bad. Some parts of it make you feel good. You have a partner who you have been with for almost two years and who wants to see you almost every Monday and Thursday. The Prime Minister, John Cope, is another source of goodness in your life. You remember the day in 2033 when he was elected and you felt elated. The man was a beacon of change, a beacon of hope. You still get that feeling to a small degree when you see him, but as analysts have put it, he has ruined the last four years. His programmes to reintroduce public medicine and a system to prevent those defective or prole class from starving have failed. Most of the illuminated spoke out against him at the time and it turns out they were right. All through your life you've always thought you could do something more. Every night the horror sanctuary would illuminate the sky with its red glow, reminding you that some people would enjoy living to 200, having their every need fulfilled, and having the power to change billions of lives. That is something that might happen to you one day. Despite what everyone around you has ever said, you feel it is possible to achieve that. After all, the adverts can't all lie, can they? All you need is a chance. So another top-notch bit of scene setting. Um, I think many people can empathise with working a series of demeaning and badly paid jobs with little hope of promotion and very little hope of any kind of ongoing pay increment. A uh, bit close to the knuckle for me, I've done a lot of those jobs. So we begin on Wednesday the 23rd of December 2037. Another late finish to the day. Another trudge back to your apartment via the smelly, polluted, dark streets. Mr Kilgore demanded that you stayed and finished a spreadsheet on a big clothes company you cover. Turns out a lot of the labourers revolted over wanting more sleep, school time and playtime, so it was a last-minute case. When you brought this up, Mr Kilgore shouted at you and threatened to penalise your social rank due to insubordination. If he did that, your bonus would be cut, so you capitulated. However, it's done. Last one out of the office. At least tomorrow is your day off. A day full of discounts for last-minute Christmas shopping. You already have enough presents, but you have to spend a certain amount of money or your social rank will be penalised. You wonder who you will be spending Christmas Day with. Your partner still hasn't invited you round, and neither have your parents. See, that sounds uh, like an almost idyllic Christmas Day to me, being left alone to do my own thing for 24 full hours. Ideal. As you step into the street from your neo-brutalist concrete tower, the noise and the smell hit you. 
You wish your face mask protected you from smells as well as pollution. But no. Defectives are lying among the debris in the street, covered in ragged blankets. Polyester-clad proles stagger among them, drinking alcohol, singing, shouting and fighting. As they see you in your office clothes, they jeer. One of them tosses an empty lager can in your direction. It misses. You hurry past them, trying not to let their jeers get to you. When you have a moment alone, you snatch a look to the sky. The blurry white stars try and shine through the air pollution. Outshining them all is the red glow of the Horus space station, the home of the illuminated and the brainchild of Christopher Smith, the world's first trillionaire. He made his fortune using space drones to mine asteroids for rare earth metals. You remember watching the broadcast videos of life on the station with excitement. Now you avoid them. You have better things to do than to keep up with what the rich are doing. That's something that I've never understood is the um, propensity of people to watch entertainment based around the lifestyles of the rich and famous. I would say that much of that entertainment is intended to be aspirational, but in a sanely ordered society, it would just be a list of people to go up against the wall. You walk down the street past the Omnicorp office building. You walk past the plaque on the wall. This plaque is dedicated to the climate scientists who definitely accidentally died just before COP35. They could have made a difference. Sols. This plaque is funded by the Omnicorp Fossil Fuel Department. They still haven't replaced the plaque with one with correct spelling. As you turn a corner, you come across a group of people in grey, worn clothes and wearing badges of bulbous grey heads with black teardrop-shaped eyes. They are in the R Wars group, an organisation that thinks that grey aliens are running the government. You're a slave to aliens, shouts one as you go by. You wish that you could at least have your walk home feel like alone time. There is a constant bombardment from every faction of society all the time. You wish that you had time to just process your thoughts. As you finish this single thought, you hear music blare out beside you, bass blasting at you from the street. Some rich kids are driving by you in a car very slowly, and they are all laughing at you. Before you can do or say anything, they speed off. Then two people push past you and run into the game's arcade. They are eager to live in the virtual immersion world for as long as they can afford. Some people's lives revolve around work and virtual immersion, with breaks for eating, sleeping and going to the toilet when they really need to. Does no one else think that this is all insane? Sometimes you just want to scream, but then you realise that everyone else seems fine with their lives and a scream would make a scene. You finally make it home without any more incidents. You are outside Tower 27B. Your apartment, Apartment 6, is in here. One day you would love to move into a house, but for the moment you'll have to be content with the neo-brutalist concrete tower you live in. You approach the tower door and wave the palm of your hand over the key box. Nothing. Strange. Your omni-chip was working when you clocked off your job. You wave it over the key box again. Still nothing. You feel panic rising. What has happened to you? Everything is on that chip. 
your social rank, your money, your movie collection, and you have never known the chip to fail, except that time it didn't register your wages for a week, or didn't increase your social rank for a day. It has never failed to deduct money for bills, however. You run off to your nearest omniscreen point while trying to avoid the stinking defectives and drunken proles. After five minutes of panicked running, you arrive to the box containing the omniscreen. On the box is an election poster for the current Prime Minister, John Cope. It simply shows his face with the word COPE on the bottom. Someone has scribbled the word CAN'T at the top of the poster. They have a point. Over the last five years, Cope went from being a national hero to an ineffectual laughing stock. Everyone says he's going to lose the 2038 election by a landslide. You open the box door and wave your omni-chip over the contact point. The screen flashes to life. You wait with bated breath for the verdict. Will you still have money? Will you still have a job? Will you still have Objectivist 4? The screen changes colour and your heart stops. So... I will say that the world that's being painted feels very 2000 AD. If you add a uh, fascist police force in the style of um, Judge Dredd, this would feel right at home in that kind of uh, environment. That's not a criticism. I love 2000 AD. Do you suffer from excessive flatulence? Does your aroma repel your friends? Are your trumps too traumatic? Try Flatugon, the award-winning gas deodoriser. The screen shows a golden-haired lady in a bikini is standing on a beach that is far too clean to be natural. It is Maria, world-famous actress, model and singer. She is holding a box of said Flatugon, smiling at the screen. You frantically push the skip part on the screen, but it doesn't seem to be working. I mean, that is a thing that is almost certainly going to happen at some point in the future. There will be unskippable ads when you try and engage with your banking apps or with anything that you need to do to actually get by in the world. I, I think that will come in the next five years. There will be unskippable ads before you're allowed to use the self-service checkout in a supermarket. Our all-new improved formula binds with smelly sulfur compounds in the intestine and reacts with them to turn them into a beautiful bouquet. Flatugon comes in three aromas, rose, lavender, and our all-new fragrance, coffee. So buy Flatugon today and propel yourself forward with fragrance. You know it makes sense. The screen goes blank. You wave your omni-chip over the point again, hoping that this time you will get something meaningful. After what seems like an eternity, the screen starts to provide the information from your omni-chip. It reads, You have been declared a terrorist. Your assets have been frozen. Your social rank score has been set to minus 100. Your personal data has been erased. Your library card has been revoked. This is a message sponsored by Omnicorp. We hope you will continue to use our products in the future. Have a Merry Christmas, Terrorist 6. You stare at the screen in disbelief. You are a terrorist. You are nothing. Delete your name from your adventure sheet and replace it with Terrorist 6. That is legitimately awesome. 
what better way to show the dehumanizing callousness of a bureaucracy than to have the player scratch out their name and replace it with a state mandated designator like terrorist six that is really cool but why has this happened you did everything right you tried to follow all of your bosses instructions and diktats even when they conflicted you took all your punishments without comment you did everything you could to increase your social rank value from picking up litter to guarding the sewers from sabotage and now you're a terrorist Maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's a mistake. Maybe your work colleagues are pulling a prank on you, like the time they put laxative in your water bottle, or the month they spent insisting that they couldn't understand anything you were saying, or the time they rigged an explosive up under your desk. They assured you afterwards that they had miscalculated how much explosive they were supposed to put in, but since it was your fault for setting it off, they weren't going to pay the hospital bills or help you make up your sickness deficit. Maybe you could ask your partner or your best friend for help. The situation might even be dire enough to visit your parents. Maybe it's right. Maybe you accidentally did something terrible. You borrowed a pencil once and forgot to return it. Maybe word got back. Maybe someone couldn't write an important note because of your actions. You also bought a glass paperweight from a dodgy looking shop. You were never sure if the owner had all their paperwork in order, but your attraction to the paperweight overcame your misgivings about funding a delinquent. Maybe you should give yourself up. As you set off, you see a faded poster on a wall. There is a picture of a man in a soup grasping at wads of paper money. The poster is entitled, Today Could Be the Best Day of Your Life. So, we've got choices. Do you want to go to the Enforcers station to try and talk out this mistake? Do you want to go to your partner's flat, your best friend's flat, or your parent's flat? With the strong dystopian vibes we've been having, I think the Enforcer station is out. I can't imagine they'll be sympathetic, and I can't imagine they will admit that there's been a mistake. I think, therefore, we will go to the best friend's flat, since neither the partner nor the parents give any indication that they care about me one way or the other. So, best friends it is. Your best friend lives in an apartment with one more room than you. They have a bowl of fruit that includes Swedish grapes and British peaches, and they have a big collection of fashionable clothes in their wardrobe. For some reason, you have always been friends despite being from different social classes. You are in the lower one, of course. You were always invited to gatherings where you made everybody laugh. You ring the intercom to the apartment. A disruptive noise is in the background. It sounds like music. Yes! It's me. The music continues to play. Oh, uh, so you got my invite. I thought you didn't want to come. I, I never had an invite. What? I never had an invite. What? I said I never had an invite. No need to shout. Look, I need some... What? Why don't you come... Look, I'm kind of busy. I can't come down. Can you come back tomorrow? Do you want to say, okay, sure, or I'm fine. I've got better things to do than attend your pathetic parties. Or, you know, I can't have a desperate loser like you dragging me down and sucking the life out of me. 
listening to your self-promoting rubbish is the last thing I need. Um, so we've got kind of two, three flavours. Uh, meek, medium assertive and unnecessarily confrontational. So I think we'll go medium assertive with it's fine. I've got better things to do than attend your pathetic parties. Very much at the, the passive end of the aggressive spectrum, which is the end I feel most comfortable with. There is silence. Better things like what? It doesn't matter. It's not really for you to know. What is it? Can't say. You're not invited. There is a pause. Please? Nope. I've got better things to do than come to your party. Look, I'll give you back the money I owe you. Now, please, can you tell me where you're going? I'll, I'll ditch these losers. What was that? You hear another voice shout in the background. With a smile, you leave. It is getting late. The light is becoming even more gloomy than normal. You look up and through the fume cloud, you can see the red light of the setting sun. You need to find somewhere to sleep. However, this is very problematic as a terrorist access to your apartment has been denied and all of your assets have been frozen. Your parents don't let you stay. You were sick in the bed far too many times and they got sick of clearing it up. They didn't want to hear your excuses either as they said that other people were never as sick as much as you when they were babies. Where could you stay? You could try to use the gift card your parents bought you to get some overnight accommodation. It probably won't last for more than one night though. If you decide that keeping a low profile is best, you could hide out with the defectives and vagrants who the enforcers usually ignore when they don't want to beat one for amusement. Omnicorp has built several homeless shelters across the city. You could try one of those. Finally, you could try something more comfortable but risky. When you left school at 19, you got a summer job as a delivery cyclist. One of your classmates, Alfie Walton, was from one of the richest families in your city and used to order a takeaway every night you worked. He even requested that you deliver it to him and he would always complain about you when he did. However, the burning humiliation has finally paid off. Because you did so many deliveries, you saw all of the security measures in Alfie's house. Alfie's parents weren't that hot on the security for the back door. A strong shove should undo it. You also know that Alfie and his family spent every Christmas in the Bahamas. They can grease every wheel in order to get a flight that far. The house will be guaranteed to be empty. I cannot resist the option of breaking into a posh near wells house and going through their spirits cabinet. So I am going to take a risk and I'm going to Alfie Walton's house. I mean, I'm already a terrorist. I don't think adding housebreaking to the list is going to seriously impact my social standing. You eventually get to Alfie's house. It is ringed by a large wall and has a gate with a chip scanner on it. However, it is easy to scale and get over. You ignore the front door and head around to the back. As you go round to the back of the house, you jump as you see someone standing there. Then you recognise who they are. Danny? Danny Walker? The man turns around. At first he looks shocked, but then he sees his fellow classmate and smiles. I never thought I'd see you here. You fancy a Christmas at Alfie's expense too? Well, yes. Actually, I'm in a bit of a fix. Oh yeah. Christmas bonus didn't come through. Parents being tight again. 
I've been branded a terrorist and had my identity erased. Heavy. Well, what did you do to get that? I don't know. I came home from work to find out that it had happened. I'm sorry to hear that. Why are you here? What are you up to? I bet you must be in the mundane class by now and running your own programming business. Yeah, I wish. Well, why did you say that? You were always sharp. You were always top of the class, out of the students who hadn't bribed the teachers. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it got me in the defective class in the end. Joking. I wish I was, and it's down to our mutual friend Alfie here. You see, Alfie was terrible at school, and especially at coding. No amount of hard work, revision or bribing would get him a past grade. So he asked me to do his coursework for him. For money. Cheeky. Exactly. I would have said no, but my parents found out and they really needed food and rent at the time, so they told me to do it and did the coursework for him, but then he got found out for cheating. So he failed? No, I got failed because I was the one who did it. Alfie was too rich to fail. So I'm a vending machine repairman and he's in middle management for some construction company. He was the uh, programmer for a bit, but he got moved sideways when they found out he wasn't any good at it. If he didn't have money, he'd have starved to death years ago. Anyway, I know the Walton's chip code, so I can tell where they are. Whenever they go on a holiday at the expense of our lungs and climate, I come over here and help myself. Fancy joining me? Haven't you been caught on camera? Didn't they report you to the enforcers? Of course not. If they did that, they would lose their no-claims bonus. Those insurance payments are pretty steep, you know. Less steep than some food you aren't going to eat anyway. OK, the back door should be easy to force open. It was last time I came, he says, but they've put a number lock on the door. They went old school in case someone cloned their omnichip signal. Or maybe they're just a bunch of misers. Whatever reason, I must have gotten careless when I last came here and eaten and drunk something that they actually wanted. The lock uses buttons. I can tell that the numbers 0, 1 and 2 are used, but I don't know what order they go in, or how many times each digit is used. Could you help? So, um, if you have a record trait, you can. If you don't, I guess you can't, and I don't. Uh, I do like the idea that insurance has got so derangingly expensive that even the rich can't bring themselves to claim in case they lose their no claims bonus. It would be very easy to imagine how high insurance premiums could get if you force people to take out insurance, as you see with uh, medical insurance in some countries where medical insurance is both required and also not really regulated. Anyway, we don't have the record trait, so we'll just have to do our best. Shame. I suppose Christmas is cancelled then. I'd better get back. Good luck. Danny rushes off. What are you going to do? You look around the back garden and see a large shed. You walk up to it and try the door. It is open. The shed isn't used for tools. It looks more like a place for relaxing in. There are cushions all over the place. You have no trouble arranging yourself in a comfy bed and falling asleep. 
You are in your childhood bed. You know that because your head is lying on one small pillow. Your parents always told you that they could never afford another one. You try and get up, but you can't move. Then you see them, human-looking shadows standing over you. Silently, they all raise an arm and point at you. You feel yourself falling. You wake up the next morning feeling refreshed. It was nice not to have your neighbours bothering you about the broken light or hearing the sounds from the nearby apartments. You think about what you're going to do. It's Christmas Eve. The shoppers will be out doing their last-minute shopping and trying to double the number of social rank points they gain. This leads to crowds of shoppers fighting to get into shops and buy goods. Violence is common and death inevitable. These violent crowds are given the name shobs, short for shopping mobs. The enforcers will be out in large numbers along with quadcopter drones. The rich will not want their property damaged. You will have to take your chance with the shobs. Setting your story on Christmas Eve is a nice way to lend it even more kind of pathos than it would otherwise have. It's a really nice idea. I'm enjoying this very much. You don't really know what to do. If you hadn't woken up in a completely different place, you would have thought that yesterday's events were just a bizarre dream. You wander around in a daze for a bit, not really taking notice of the crowds rushing to the shopping centre to get their last-minute Christmas deal. If they don't spend enough, their social rank score could be penalised. You get swept along with the mob towards the town centre. Enforcer vans are parked at various points in the street in preparation for the rabid fights that are inevitably going to break out over the products. They need to protect their employer's property. Last year, your city was proud to announce that it was in the top five cities for preventing losses to big business. You are swept up by the crowd, baying tattooed proles, the nervous quick cravens in their crumpled grey suits and the focused mundanes in their budget fashionable clothes. In the side streets, you see some defectives look eagerly on, wondering if they are going to be able to get a corpse to loot. The shopping centre is going to bring you closer to dangerous shopping mobs, and patrols of heavily armed enforcers. As you make it to the square where a statue of a man on a horse stands, you hear a low hum and see the quadcopter drones are hovering overhead. Going along with the crowd was a very bad idea indeed. Some loudspeakers have been set up in the square. The voice on them booms, Civilians, today is the day to double your social rank score for shopping. Buy as much as you can, for as they say, it is better to give than to receive, but even better still to buy. The shops will open in five. Your mind races. In order to stop getting trampled or caught, the best thing to do would be to go to a store that doesn't really sell presents. Four. Like the hardware store, perhaps. Three. Or the games arcade. The shops will be too busy shopping to play games. Two. Or maybe one of the smaller food shops, one that isn't selling myco-turkey. One. You brace yourself. Go! Horns blare and you feel a huge push as the shop behind you lurches forward to make sure that they are the first ones to get the best Christmas bargains. It feels like an eternity, but you spend about 30 seconds pushing and dodging to avoid the rabid Christmas shoppers charging to the run-down department stores that sell damaged or used goods. Anyone with the money, sense and connections would have ordered all of the presents online. This is nicely written. Um, 
I particularly want to call out the simple way in which the scenes are being set. The description is minimalist is, is going too far, but the descriptions are broad, but they give you enough to paint a picture and the author is focusing nicely on the science fiction elements, the strange elements that are unfamiliar and not dwelling on the more familiar parts of the world, allowing you to just fill those in from your own mental picture. As the shobs disperse to go to their chosen shops, you manage to dash free of the crowd into a side street. You take a moment to look around. There are shobs at all of the department stores, with people battling each other to get through the doors. Already there is one person lying on the floor, blood streaming from a head wound that they are clutching while screaming in agony. Red Cross workers are pushing their way through the shops to get to them. The enforcers are simply looking on and not intervening. You sometimes hear laughter coming from their direction. They are here to protect the property of the illuminated, not human life. You think about the nearby places you could take refuge in until the madness subsides. So, uh, Games Arcade, Hardware Store or Mini Supermarket. I think we'll go to the Games Arcade. I do love an arcade game. You head to the arcade. It is in the ground floor of a large building. As you walk through the door into the dimly lit room, the smell of stale beer and sweat hits you. There are many machines here. Some have computer games on them and others are gambling machines. People who can't afford to subscribe to the immersive VI games online are able to play them here for only twice the price. Some of the machines contain people, obviously virtual immersion addicts. They must like VI a lot to be missing out on the Christmas Eve deals. There is an attendant here who shot you a look of pure vitriol for walking into the arcade as he was shoving a Polybius machine against the wall of retro arcade games. He is expecting you to either demand or beg for a VI machine. Arcade attendants usually have armour to protect them from VIMAs. Nice to see Polybius referenced the uh, spooky but fictional video game that has been the source of a number of different bits of internet culture over the years. There is a great deep dive into the history of Polybius by the YouTube essayist Ahoy, which I strongly urge anyone who's listening to check out. It's a fascinating bit of work. You think about what you should do. Since you are a terrorist, your accounts must all have been wiped. All that time trying to level up and win games gone. It's like it never happened. In one corner of the arcade is a pile of machine parts that the attendant was probably going to spend today working on. He wasn't expecting consumers to come in here, but you aren't a consumer. You are a terrorist. A thought crosses your mind. You're going to have to evade the enforcers and quadcopter drones at some point. And since you are already a terrorist, you can't really get punished anymore for anything else you do. Is there anything worth stealing? You won't be able to steal any money. It's all electronic. The easiest thing to steal would be some of the parts. A nice thing here, which is the way in which an increasing reliance on e-commerce and contactless forms of payment is a way of subtly unpeopling those that don't have access to um, bank cards and 
smartphones. The uh, cashless society, one of its side effects um, is to uh, make those living outside of the mainstream less able to conduct their affairs. So uh, once again, uh, it's asking us if we have the wrecker trait. We don't, so let's find out what happens next. You try to look as casual as possible and fail miserably. Doesn't matter, however, as the attendant is ignoring you, probably hoping that this will all go away as quickly as possible. He is currently trying to turn on the Polybius machine. You look at the pile of machine parts in a nearby toolbox who can't find anything from the parts that you would want, but you do take a hammer from the toolbox. Add the hammer to your adventure sheet. The uh, author has taken the sensible approach of putting gaming instructions in bold in the text. I think that's a sensible thing to do. I will often flag system words using capital letters when I'm writing adventure game books. Anything you can do that just makes it clear what parts of the game book involve systems is a very useful thing. You decide to leave before the attendant gets suspicious. I was hoping to be able to try and play Polybius, but hey-ho. You walk out of the shop and head out to the town centre. You are going to need to find shelter away from the prying eyes of the enforcers. You turn into a narrow side street, and then you hear the hum from behind you. You turn around to see an enforcer quadcopter drone hovering before you. It has a camera on its front and a blinking red light. You have been spotted. Soon there will be a patrol of enforcers rushing here to bring you in. How would you stop the quadcopter? Do you have a correction? Stick a large torch or a hammer. All of these are equivalent. Or you could have a signal jammer or you could run. Um, I think we'll try a bit of the old assertiveness and a spot or percussive maintenance to see if we can discourage this quadcopter. So with hammer in hand, Let's try and smash it to bits. You smash the object on top of the drone. It lurches downwards and then recovers. You smash it again, this time aiming for one of its rotor blades. It lurches again. A third time makes it lurch and hit the concrete on the ground. The humming starts to sputter, but before you can deliver the blow that will destroy it, the drone flies upwards to escape your assault. Not needing any more prompting, you flee. You flee through the streets as fast as you can until you are sure that there are no enforcers or drones around. You stand in the street and catch your breath. What are you going to do now? You are a terrorist. The enforcers are going to hunt you down for whatever crime they think you committed. And they don't seem to be the kind to listen to your side either. This is never what you were told. When you were at school, enforcers would come and hand out toy correction sticks that you would all hit each other with. They would tell you that they would protect your property if you got nice and rich. Turns out it was all lies. Being declared a terrorist is becoming quite the learning experience. So, um, it's asking us for whether we have a few code words. Do we have hot? Do we have sauce? Or do we have turkey? We have none of the above. You decide what to do next. Can you carry on like this for the rest of your life? This must be a mistake. Maybe it will go away and you'll have a normal, horrible Christmas. Maybe your chip will work on your apartment again. It could be worth a try. Or you can just accept that you're a terrorist and leave your old life behind. No more last-minute reports to fill out, or constant scolding for not being good enough. It would be a world of uncertainty, though. So we have a choice of whether we want to just go home and admit defeat, which we're not going to do, 
we're going to do the other thing, which is to go to the urban wasteland to hide. The urban wasteland seems like the best bet to stay away from the enforcers. You remember stories about the urban wasteland. They were basically summed up as, if you go to the urban wasteland, you will never be heard from again. No more specifics were given. Now that the enforcers are after you, never being heard from again sounds like the better option. You duck through the streets, avoiding the gaze of passers-by and frantically looking around whenever you hear what could be the sound of drones. Eventually you come to the urban wasteland. It is a collection of derelict buildings and piles of refuse. Sounds like Northampton Town Centre. Despite its worn-down state, it is a hive of activity. So this is where all the vagrants live. For a few minutes, you cannot help but take in the society that seems to exist here. People walking through the alleyways, talking, shopping, interacting. Then, for some reason, they start to run away from where you are standing. Then you register the noise. You look up to see a drone hovering above you. Then it unleashes a sonic blast that causes agonising pain in your ears and a screaming sound in your head. No one else seems affected by this focused attack. So we lose one resolve. Resolve now two. Is your resolve now zero? It is not. The pain is agonising, but you are still on your feet. Then you see them. A squad of enforcers are running towards you, waving their correction sticks. Do you want to run for it or surrender? Uh, yeah, I'm going to run for it. Um, I don't think the enforcers are here to uh, help me out. I think they're here to just beat some people up to uh, reduce the crime figures. You run through the narrow alleyways behind the derelict buildings. You hear the drone hovering above you and the enforcers running after you, barking at you to stop. Does anyone running from the enforcers actually stop when they tell them to, you think to yourself? Surely if they were running, they wouldn't want to stop. A man walks out of his hovel in front of him and you have to dodge him. You decide to focus on running and not to think about how the enforcers are wasting their energy. You are heading towards a large factory building. Maybe you can hide in there. As you approach it, you hear the sonic blast of the drone again. Brace for the pain, but nothing comes. Stopping and turning around, you see the enforcers backing away from you as the drone blasts them with its sonic attack. The drone is moving erratically around and it dives after the enforcers who run away from it. What happened there? You turn back towards the old factory to see a man and a woman standing near you. The woman is carrying a large remote control and the man looks familiar. They wave and approach. As they do, you recognise that the man is one of your old school friends, Danny Walker. Ah, oh, Danny again. So, uh, asking us for code words, uh, turkey or hot? Uh, no, we have neither of those. You approach them. Danny? Danny Walker? This is you, says Danny. I never thought I'd see you here. This is my friend Rosie. We made the drone hacker together. Pleased to meet you, says Rosie. You're welcome to join our group, but you must come indoors quickly. We've got something to do to make it safe. Danny and Rosie walk up to the large door of the factory. You can see an old faded sign on it for the local lock company. Danny knocks on the door, which opens. You walk into a large hall. There are long tables here. People are sitting at the tables, talking and eating and laughing. Now that you're in our group, we need to rid you of your omni-chip. Otherwise, the enforcers can track you. 
Come with me, please, says Rosie. You follow Rosie to the end of the hall and then through a corridor. Eventually you come to a door. Rosie motions for you to go through it. The room you enter is covered in white tile and smells of bleach. There is a bed in the middle of the room and a table with several medical instruments upon it. By the table stands a man in a spotless white coat. Good day to you. My name is Lee Kwang and I am a medical expert. Uh, hi, I'm here to have my Omnichip out. Are you a doctor? I was, and I still practice medicine, but I was struck off. You're not filling me with confidence here. Yes, well, I was struck off for saving lives, if you can believe it. It all started when my hospital was introduced to the drug Caracatone. You ever heard of it? That is not an easy word to say. Oh, the diet pill? Someone at my office took it once. He didn't leave the toilet for a week. Indeed. Well, he was one of the lucky ones. It killed 33% of patients. How? By making them never leave the toilet. Anyway, after I worked out that this drug was having such a terrible effect, I refused to subscribe it to my patients. Instead, I suggested that they cut down on sugar, and I campaigned for a sugar tax. When a representative from the manufacturer came to our hospital and found out about my refusal, my bosses had a little chat with me about using all the treatment methods available to me and whether I was serious about my career. I was serious, so I still didn't use the drug. I became a doctor for the patients, not big pharma. Anyway, a week later, my bosses found out I hadn't prescribed the drug once. And that's where it all started. Paperwork piled up, patient complaints kept coming through. Within a month, I had been hauled in front of a committee and struck off. Fortunately, I knew of this place from when I used to volunteer, helping with the vagrants. So I came here, and I've been here ever since, actually healing people with the best methods I know how. Now, which hand is your omnichip in? Li Kuang grabs a rusty hacksaw from the table and walks towards you, brandishing it. <laughs> I love a good, uh, unnecessarily cruel and unusual medical treatment plan. Then he stops and bends over. You hear laughter. <laughs> the look on your face! Hilarious! That never gets old. So, um, that's a nice little example of using a paragraph break to create tension, which is then resolved in the next paragraph. Even though we didn't get to make any kind of decision, sending us to another section was a really good idea because it just builds up that tension in a way that I just don't think any other form of literature really manages. I guess you can do the same thing with chapter breaks in um, novels. That kind of hits the same sort of effect, but only game books can do it quite so frequently and to quite such a an effective degree. Li Quang tosses the hacksaw onto the table and then goes back to it and grabs another instrument. It looks like a black cylinder. He walks towards you. Chip hand up, he says. You raise your chip hand and he puts the cylinder on the palm. He presses a button and there is a tickling sensation in the palm of your hand. It's out, says Li Quang. He then goes over to the table, takes the chip out of the device and puts it on the table. Then he picks up a hammer. Would you like to do the honours? You grab the hammer from him and hit the chip. 
It is still intact, but something stirs within you. This chip was forced upon you when you were a child. They asked for your consent when you were three. They never told you what it would do. They just told you that if you got the chip, you could get some free sweets. It's been part of you ever since. Watching you. Hindering you. Controlling you. You slam the hammer onto the chip. Then again. Then again. You keep hitting the chip long after it has been smashed to smithereens. Eventually, when your hand can't take any more impacts, breathing heavily, you toss the hammer onto the table. Feels good, doesn't it? Now let's go and enjoy that food, shall we? And with that, you and Lee Kwang leave the room and head back to the hall. Now we're being asked for code words again. We don't have any of them, so I'm not getting to make a vast number of choices in this adventure so far. You leave the room feeling lighter than before. No one is outside the door. You retrace your steps back to the hall. When you get there, you see a group of people. One is a lady wearing a dress with flowers all over it. Unlike most people in the hall, her outfit is spotless and she has fabulously smooth hair. Another is a woman wearing black tracksuit bottoms and a black t-shirt. She stares at you intensely. The last person is a young man, probably still a teenager. His eyes dart from you to the door to the rest of the people in the room. Oh, hello. It's our newest recruit. Would you like to help us get some Christmas dinner? Says the lady in the dress. I am San. The lady in the black is Sakura and the young man is James. Sakura nods to you silently and James waves. And who might you be? The three of them look at you. You realise that your chip registered you as nameless. However, the chip is now gone. You realise that you are now free to choose whatever name you desire. You think of one and then introduce yourself. Erase your given name from your character sheet and replace it with your chosen name. So, Terrorist 6 no longer. I reclaim the name. Palsy Whipper Snapper. So I'm now starting to think might turn out to be quite a heroic name. Would you like to join us on our latest scrounge? Asks San. We're going to get some goodies for Christmas dinner. I'd like everyone here to have vitro turkey. Vitro turkey? Do you know how much that costs? Oh, we're not going to buy it, no. Plenty of food is thrown away because of sell-by date laws, despite it being fine for days or even weeks afterwards. We're just going to get it from the food bins behind the supermarket. There's enough there to feed half the city. Do you want to ask them if it's illegal? Or go with the group or stay in the lock factory. Um, I don't care if it's illegal. Bit of dumpster diving. Awesome. We'll go with the group. Excellent, says San. Follow me. San walks off. As she does, Sakura follows her. You follow San across the hall to another door. She opens it for you and motions you through. You then walk down some drab corridors with colourful graffiti to cheer the place up. One has a picture of a teddy bear with a pair of scissors shoved into an eye. Another has a picture of a child in a cage. Another has a picture of a man in a suit standing atop a pyramid of dead bodies. Sometimes there aren't pictures. Sometimes there is just writing. One piece of graffiti reads, We rule the now. Another one reads, Better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Another one reads, This could be the best day of your life thought-provoking stuff. Uh, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven comes from Paradise Lost, of course. I mention it purely because I've read Paradise Lost 
and I like telling people that I've read Paradise Lost. Eventually you come to a metal door which San opens for you and you walk through outside into the urban wasteland. Outside is a man wearing white t-shirt and jeans. This is Tommy. San points at the large man. Pleasure to meet you, mumbles Tommy. Sakura turns to you and this is... You give Tommy your new name. When you tell them your chosen name, San motions you and you all start moving through the wasteland. You eventually come to the edge of a street where a white van is parked. Tommy opens the back and San and Sakura jump in. You do the same. You sit in the back of the van with several backpacks on the floor. For the food, says San. Tommy gets in the front and starts the engine. You all lurch as the van drives off. Ten minutes later, you stop. Tommy gets out, walks around to the back and opens the back door. He reaches in and grabs some backpacks. Sakura and San do the same and you follow suit. You walk through the alleys until you come to a place with large metal bins. They are locked with the latest smart padlocks and biometric keys and they have internet links to the authorities. Tommy reaches into one of the backpacks, pulls out a crowbar and brings it crashing down on one of the padlocks. It smashes into two pieces and clatters to the floor. Tommy opens the bin to reveal several tins and packets of food with their sell-by date today. There is loads of vitro turkey here. The sort of food that you could only dream of eating at Christmas is piled up behind the supermarket. The team gets to work. Sam tells you and Tommy what to find for Christmas dinner. You and Tommy pick up the food and fill the backpacks up. Sakura does not join in but simply stands nearby, looking down the alleyways, arms folded. Why is she here? you think. Halt, goes a voice, and a dazzling light shines upon you. It's an enforcer, carrying a large heavy torch, the kind which can double up as a weapon. Get away from that bin. That's not your food to waste. Sakura simply walks up to the enforcer and stands in front of him. Prepare for ID scan, scum, growls the enforcer. Sakura continues to stand there, not changing her position. Do what I say, scum, shouts the enforcer. Sakura still does not move. Fine, shouts the enforcer. Take this. The enforcer lifts their torch in preparation to hit Sakura. In one fluid motion, she grabs his arm and throws him over her, slamming him to the floor. She picks up the torch and shines it in the enforcer's helmeted face. Get out of here before I really hurt you, she says. The enforcer gets the message. He rolls over, struggles up, and then jogs off into the darkness. Oh, that's why she's here, you think. So, I've been recording for a bit over an hour and twenty. I think that is a reasonable point to call a halt to the recorded playthrough. Amazingly, I have not got myself perished yet. Time will tell whether or not I manage to survive my adventure. Having a nice time with this one. It's not subtle. It's really not subtle. But it is enjoyable. I'm going to go away. Play through the rest of this book. See whether I can wrangle some of its secrets. And I will come back to you in just a few moments with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. I have finished Rulers of the Now. Did I enjoy it? Very much so, with only a couple of reservations. As always, I'm enormously impressed when people put stuff out there into the world. 
even more so when they're not getting paid for it directly. Rulers of the Now is available on Drive Through RPG as a pay-what-you-want PDF, and I'd say it's more than worth a few quid at the very least. Stuart has also written a whole bunch of other stuff. There's a bibliography over on Lloyd of Gamebooks, and you should check out all his work. I will say this does still feel like an amateur effort, and I don't mean that as criticism. I think there's stuff that a professional editor would have tidied up that would have made the book potentially stronger, but I suspect there's other things that an editor would have wanted changed that would have been to the detriment of the final product. It's idiosyncratic, and I enjoy the idiosyncratic very much. Do anything you like, just don't bore me. I want to start by talking a bit about the shape of the book, because while the extract I played gives a great sense of the feel of the book, I think the structure is worth describing. I'm going to try to avoid spoilers, so apologies if this sounds a little vague. We start with the personal crisis of being labelled a terrorist, and then become more acquainted with the people who live outside the system. From there, we get sent on an information-gathering portion of the game, before the final section's climax at the heart of the Now's power structure. This structure is great for two reasons. Firstly, because it demonstrates escalation of stakes. What begins as one person's really bad day winds up potentially changing the fate of the world, and that's a narrative I personally very much enjoy. I like stories that take people from the ordinary to the extraordinary whether that be Luke Skywalker transitioning from simple farm boy to Jedi Knight in Star Wars, or Richard Mayhew getting sucked from a middle-class existence into a fantasy underworld in Neverwhere. The second reason I like the structure is that the different acts of the story also have a different feel in terms of how they play. In the early stages, we're in a panic, just trying to make it through each day, very reactive. In the middle section, we're on a mission, but it's one of exploration and information rather than fast-paced action. It's only in the final section where things get truly dangerous, and also when things get truly strange. There's a surreal, or perhaps hyperreal quality to the whole story, but the last act goes berserk in ways I personally appreciate because it reminds me of 1970s science fiction movies, and I love 1970s science fiction movies. I think there's a lot to be said for dividing your story into thematic sections. You can use more than three acts in a game book more easily than in other mediums, but the three-act structure still works because three-act structures almost always work. It's an approach that, especially in the first two acts, allows for plenty of scope for world-building. The more slow-paced middle section in particular allows you to get a real feel for the dystopia that the author has fashioned. It's very broadly presented, there's not much subtext happening here, it's all just text, and there's points where the more villainous characters lay out their complicity in the unfairness of the world without a hint of nuance or indeed shame. The thing it reminds me most strongly of is the great socialist novel The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist, which takes a didactic approach to its tale of class oppression and presents it in the manner of Charles Dickens at his least subtle. I don't object to this. Personally, I'd probably have aimed for a slightly more sophisticated presentation, but 
if you've got themes that you want to get across in a game book, you probably do want to err on the side of excess. A lot of the prose in game books is what you might call functional text, setting the scene and providing information which the player needs to make decisions. It doesn't leave a vast amount of space for injecting undercurrents, so subtlety is possibly a luxury you can't always afford. Now, I'm someone who is receptive to the underlying message of rulers of the now. I'm an anarcho-communist who sees capitalism in its current form as the main thing that's killing the planet. Capitalism has achieved some great things, but it's had its day and I feel we need something more sustainable that has checks and balances designed to protect all life on Earth and which doesn't lead to Elon Musk. Any system that can generate Elon Musk is clearly beyond broken. It's possible that people on the right will find rulers of the now less enjoyable than I did, since it is essentially propaganda, but I think there's something interesting about propaganda regardless of what political message it's trying to promote, provided that it also works as entertainment, and rulers of the now works as entertainment. In the first episode of my other podcast, Popular Antiquarian, available now, I looked at a piece of anti-communist propaganda cinema from the 1950s, and I'm going to be looking at the first film adaptation of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead at some point this year. Do I agree with those films? Absolutely not. But media with a message interests me more when the message is so clearly central to the art. One thing I think Rulers of the Now captures well is the concept of alienation and the way in which late-stage capitalist societies separate us from each other while presenting the illusion that we're more connected than ever. You can talk to people from across the world via the internet. Indeed, that's what's happening with this podcast. I can connect to people in different countries and people who have completely different backgrounds and life experiences because we all share a love of adventure game books, and that's a real and powerful thing. At the same time, though, people are being made more disempowered in their working and political lives. The UK government is planning legislation to prevent certain classes of worker from withdrawing their labour as part of disputes with management. That's a pretty fundamental freedom that's being taken away. You can now be arrested in the UK for travelling with items that you might be able to use to attach yourself to something as part of a protest. In my last job, which was in the charity sector, there was a funding crisis in the local authority, and part of their solution was to try and reclaim funds from the charity because we hadn't recorded enough hours of client contact. And that was because the budget had already been slashed so that if we were to spend enough time with the clients, there wasn't actually enough time to record them. Everyone suddenly had to record more time, which meant more time in the office and less time with our clients because the local authority didn't actually care about the clients. They cared about the paperwork that the clients generated. All systems tend towards bureaucracy and the more dysfunctional the system, the more bureaucracy it generates. And that's something rulers of the now captures extremely well. The insanity of a system which allows a designated terrorist back into the office because they haven't had their official leaving cake and the people in the office have to care more about making sure you get the cake 
than they do about any security threat you might pose. I love this. It's a great way of demonstrating how pathological systems generate pathological behaviour in individuals without those individuals being pathological in and of themselves. It creates a disjunction between the personal values of the people involved in those systems and the outcomes of the behaviour of that system. This value conflict creates angst and what Marx termed alienation, and that alienation and the anomie that is a consequence of it is a running theme throughout Rulers of the Now. You see it a lot in the people you meet through the course of the narrative, especially in the early sections. You have very little connection with the people around you at the start of the story. Your parents seem to have cordially disliked you for your entire life. Your boss is a petty monster, and your partner is a remote figure who barely acknowledges your existence. You can go and try and straighten out the question of your terrorist status with the enforcers at the start of the book, but they seem riddled with internal conflicts on how to proceed and whose responsibility it is to beat the snot out of you in the name of property rights. There's a Kafka-esque element to some of these sequences, the feeling that bureaucracy has spiralled out into a meaningless maze of self-contradictions which only serve themselves and no longer reflect any wider goal. One of the most common ways in which bureaucracy becomes pathological is that it ceases to accurately reflect any real activity or product or service in the world and ends up serving only itself. There's a very nice contrast between the faceless bureaucracy and the surreal mindsets of the great and good and those put forward by the outsider community that you encounter. The author has taken care to give everyone in the urban wasteland a backstory, a reason why they ended up there. It's by no means a utopian society. It's clear that living outside the system is hard and comes at a personal cost, but it does show people from many walks of life and many different ethnic backgrounds all working together towards a common goal. One thing that's nice about the book in general is the number of different people you meet. It's something that game books tend to struggle with, but all the characters are nicely, if very broadly, drawn, and even if your interactions with them are necessarily limited by the format, I admire the attempt to take on NPCs and make them a key element of the plot. It's not something that always feels the smoothest from a gameplay perspective, because people are the most complex thing that most of us will engage with on a daily basis, and it's also something that most of us are experts on, so if there are any issues, they tend to leap off the page. Conversations in particular are intensely interactive in real life, so presenting them in a game book can be a problem, but I think the author has done a decent job of trying to make them feel involving, even if the options for decision-making are few. So it's great to see a game book engaging with political themes. It's not something that happens very often, and it shows that you can use the form to tackle big things, and I don't think that's going to be a surprise to anyone. We've already seen books like Creature of Havoc interrogate and invert some of the classic themes of fantasy, but it's not something that happens very often, and when it does, that should definitely be celebrated. I'm curious to see if there's any other game books out there that do the same thing from a different philosophical perspective. In terms of the systems, the author has kept things simple. 
There aren't a great many different moving parts and there's no randomness involved anywhere. In terms of game design, it's closest to Heart of Ice, the wonderful Dave Morris game book, which is often considered one of the finest examples of the art form ever written. And that is not a bad base for a project. Resolve, which is your main characteristic, works nicely as a measure of your health and well-being. It's possible to run out of resolve and thus lose the game, but there's also plenty of opportunities to gain resolve as well. With total resolve generally hovering between 3 and 5, each lost point of resolve feels impactful, which is really nice. You can go in two directions with these kind of resources. One, favoured by fighting fantasy, is to give you a whole bunch of the resource and then chip at it fairly consistently over the course of the adventure. The other is to make the resource limited from the outset, which is what the author has done here. And I think if you can nail that second approach, it has a bit more power. Chipping away at a big resource can be a bit of a crutch in design. Fights in fighting fantasy game books are a good example of this. Stuck for an encounter, there's always some angry orcs, and the player will lose some stamina, probably, and that will generate a little bit of jeopardy. But if you start from a design premise that doesn't give you much wiggle room, that forces you to be more creative in your encounter design and draw from a wider pool of experiences to avoid repeating yourself. There's also not a great focus on items either, um, which means we're not on a scavenger hunt in the conventional sense. This combined with the absence of a combat system gives a very different feel to your classic fighting fantasy story, and that is always a nice thing as well. What the game does use a lot of is keywords. The first kind of keyword is your traits. One thing I want to draw attention to here is the use of the names of your traits to show progression and the passage of time. If you start with the cowardice trait, then later in the story, you'll end up with that trait being renamed athletics. This doesn't have a functional gameplay effect since all keywords operate in exactly the same way by unlocking sections of the book, but they do give you a sense of progression that is really pleasing. This is a fascinating bit of design to me since it changes only the character sheet, but it turns out that changing the character sheet is actually quite cool. You see this with the changing of your name from the one you start with to Terrorist 6, and then later back to the name of your choice, which is a great bit of business. I think there's something hardwired into gamers that changing character sheets represents a kind of gameplay, even if that change doesn't actually impact the gameplay of the book in any way. It's similar to the way that finding treasure, which doesn't have any purpose in the game, still feels cool because you get to write something down on your character sheet. It's something where you want to use a light touch because past a certain point messing around with character sheets stops feeling cool and starts to feel like you're filling in a spreadsheet, but the way it's done here feels very nicely judged. Now, keywords, traits and items are all functionally the same thing, but because human imagination works the way it does, they actually all feel different in practice. For a trait to feel like a trait, it needs to be used multiple times, for example, since a trait reflects an enduring feature of the character. Items are used to solve problems, mostly, because that's what items in the real world tend to do. Keywords, on the other hand, 
are best used as a form of memory, tracking events that have happened in the game. And that's very much the case here. They're used to store which clues you found in the investigation portion of the game. This does two things. It enables future events to be influenced by things you've already done, and it allows the book to remember things that the reader may have forgotten. Technically, it's the character sheet remembering it, but it's checked by the book. Asking the player whether they've spoken to Mrs Goggins about the leaky piano could lead to the player being unable to remember precisely, especially if Mrs Goggins talked about a whole bunch of different things, or the player was distracted by trying to do a bad Scouse accent because they were reading the book out loud to strangers on the internet. Asking whether they have the keyword leaky is just much cleaner and less ambiguous. Rulers of the Now does keywords well by tying them all to events and people, and also by making them a mechanical focus in the right part of the story. They fall by the wayside by the time you get to the final act, and that is absolutely fine. Knowing when to put a mechanic down is something I think designers are often quite bad at. You've designed this mechanic and you want to get a return on your intellectual investment, even if the adventure would be better served by stepping away from it at some point. Because the cost of mechanics in adventure game books is proportionally higher than in tabletop role-playing games, there's a tendency to have them stick around for the duration, and that's not always the right call. And it's very pleasing to see the mechanics here being used at the point where they make most sense, and then allowed to just fade into the background. There is one issue with keywords and traits that I want to draw attention to. When you use these mechanics, you're actually removing choice in the moment. The choice that you made to activate a keyword or select a trait was made in the past, and it means you don't actually get control in the moment if all the text is doing is checking whether you have a given trait or keyword. If you make heavy use of these mechanics, you can end up funneling the player into a series of events where they don't get to make choices, but only check things that are written on their character sheet. If you want to really elevate your use of keywords, you need to make it so that keywords unlock choices as well as events. There are some points during Rulers of the Now when it can feel that you're being bounced from one plot point to the next due to past choices, and that can feel disempowering almost as much as if you weren't being given a choice at all. But that's nitpicking. In general, the functional design of this book is very strong. One thing that these design choices do when taken together is to push the game book more towards a choose-your-own-adventure vibe than a fighting fantasy vibe. I found that I was less concerned with solving the book and more concerned with finding out what happened if I made different choices. And the fact that there's loads of different choices you can make makes this process just really enjoyable. There's a pleasure here in just experiencing the different strands of the plot, and that's a very cool thing. I think a lot of gamebook designers, myself included, get hung up on creating one true path to success at the expense of creating multiple different journeys. That's not a problem, it's a design approach, but I do like it when I come across books that have less of a focus on solving problems and more of a focus on exploring the world and experiencing different stories. If I was going to offer a substantive criticism of Rulers of the Now, 
it would be that the writing style feels a little flat. That's more or less my only significant criticism, and I don't want to harp on it, but I feel like the judicious use of a thesaurus might have been worthwhile to really punch up the language and give some of the sequences more of an emotional heft. A few more adjectives would have done wonders to lift the writing. I use a thesaurus all the time when I'm writing. It's a great tool to add depth to your writing, especially on a second draft when you are trying to polish. And that polish can be quite hard to apply in game books because so much of the prose tends to be functional. Uh, as I said earlier, you're generating context for decision making and that context sometimes needs to be quite neutral in order to allow the player to make up their mind and not feel like the text is railroading them towards a particular outcome. Like everything in writing and design, you're trying to balance a whole bunch of different competing needs, and there's some kind of perfection in mind, but it's always frustratingly out of reach. There's also a fair few proofreading errors, rogue capital letters and the like. It doesn't spoil the book by any means, but... If a dyslexic is noticing your proofreading errors, that probably means there's too many. As a dyslexic, I would also like the print size on the PDF to be a little bit larger. Though my eyesight is excellent, I struggle with parsing big chunks of text, so I always advocate for going a bit bigger than you need to in a digital product where real estate isn't limited in the same way that a paper book is. In summary, I think Rulers of the Now is a fresh and interesting take on the adventure game format. It's presented very nicely. I didn't come across a single broken hyperlink in the text, which is very pleasing to me. It's silly. It's satirical. It's just a lot of fun. And it's not like anything else out there on the market, as far as I know. So that is awesome as well. Check it out on DriveThruRPG. And don't forget to chuck the author a few quid. That's all for this episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next book in the Fighting Fantasy series, Dead of Night, which I'm very much looking forward to playing. You can contact me by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. And in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>